get started, so try to stay on time. We'll do our best. Uh, welcome to uh, our panel on Latino heritage conservation. I'm, my name is Sarah Gould. I'm going to do some introductions, and then we'll get started. So our first speaker today is Dr. Ray Rast. He is an assistant professor of history and the internship coordinator at Gonzaga University. His scholarship focuses on mobility, diversity, and sense of place in the modern American West. He is a historic preservation advocate with an emphasis on sites and stories related to Latino history. Dr. Rast's work helped lay the foundation for the creation of the Cesar E. Chavez National Monument in 2012, uh, as well as the um, national landmark designation that he's going to uh, talk about in uh, 2017. He served on the National Park Service Advisory Board's planning committee from 2010 to 2014 and was appointed to the scholars panel for the American Latino theme study in 2011. Uh, Dr. Rast is also a founding member of Latinos in Heritage Conservation. Um, after Dr. Rast, I'll be presenting, and again, my name is Sarah Gould. I'm a historian and curator. Uh, I am the newly appointed director of the Museo del West Side. So the, the info in your um, booklet is a little outdated because this just happened a few months ago, uh, which is an emerging community museum of the Esperanza Peace and Justice Center in San Antonio, Texas. I'm a co-founder and co-chair of Latinos in Heritage Conservation, which of course you'll learn more about today. I also serve on the board of El Camino Real de los Tejas National Historic Trail Association and the Friends of the Texas Historical Commission. And I'm an active member of the Westside Preservation Alliance, a coalition dedicated to promoting and preserving the working class architecture of San Antonio's historic West Side. And last but not least uh, is Dr. Daniel Cerda, who is a city planner specializing in urban design, economic development, and stakeholder-driven community planning. From 2014 to 2018, he led Insight Planning, a small consulting practice with a combined focus on community design, urban design policy, and economic revitalization. With an extensive background in urban history and historic preservation, he currently serves as project manager for the Kansas City Catalytic Urban Revitalization Strategy. In 2008, Dr. Cerda was appointed to the Board of Advisors of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And in addition to taking a leadership role in the development of the Trust's Latino Heritage Initiative, he also served on the Advisors Public Policy Task Force, which helped to identify and support the National Trust's public policy priorities at the state and federal levels. From 2011 to 2015, he chaired the Kansas City Museum's Nuestra Herencia Advisory Committee, which developed a range of heritage programming and exhibits highlighting Kansas City's Hispanic heritage. Uh, he also serves on uh, the Executive Committee of Latinos in Heritage Conservation. So please welcome um, Dr. Ray Rast. Okay, hi everyone. I want to say good morning because I'm on Pacific Coast time, so it's still morning. Um, a good afternoon. Um, so I have two goals um, for my 15 minutes today, at least my initial 15 minutes. Um, my two goals, I want to offer an overview of several decades of Latino preservation efforts, uh, first and foremost, but I also want to take a little bit of time 
to emphasize um, what I think of it as the ongoing strength of the grassroots preservation network that our organization, Latinos in Heritage Conservation, or LHC, that that organization represents a, a real gra ongoing grassroots um, strength in preservation efforts. So my first key point is this. For Latinos in the 21st century, preservation is nothing new. Latinos have practiced cultural preservation for countless generations going back to the 19th century and even further. From one generation to the next, we've preserved family stories and community stories about immigration, stories about migration, stories about rootedness as well, stories about sacrifice, stories about struggle, stories about perseverance. Um, and on the left is my mom and, and my abuelita, and this is me <laughs> uh, with my grandmother. So across the generations, right, sharing stories, collective stories, family stories, and preserving those stories. We've preserved values. Values like family, community, faith, hard work, service, including military service. We've preserved our languages, our religious traditions, our recipes, our music, art, literature, theater, dance, right? Latino cultural preservation. We've even along these lines preserved features of the built environment going back many, many generations. So just think of the adobe structures of New Mexico and the irrigation systems known as acequias, right? Going back many, many, many generations, this kind of preservation um, of the built environment as well. All of these efforts, I think, represent a deep respect for cultural heritage, heritage and a strong desire to maintain the strength of our communities. An extension of these cultural, so cultural preservation, an extension of these cultural preservation efforts to encompass historical preservation, I would say began during the 1970s and 1980s. This extension was fueled by growing ethnic pride among Latinos and Latinas, and it was enabled uh, in part by shifts in academia that saw a new generation of professors and graduate students, saw them begin to research and study and teach and learn Latino history. This generation of scholars includes a handful of historians who began teaching in the 1970s and many others who became professors or graduate students in the 70s and they became professors in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and one of them is um, one of the founding members of our organization, Antonia um, Castaneda, here on the, on the right. So this growing ethnic pride in the 1970s and these shifts in academia in the 70s and 80s and onward, they informed a growing number of Latino historical preservation efforts. And these efforts, these early efforts, often went hand in hand with community engagement and community activism. So in the early 1970s, for example, residents of San Diego's Barrio Logan launched an effort to preserve their community by claiming land underneath the San Diego Coronado Bay Bridge and developing that land into a park. By the mid-1980s, Chicano Park, as it came, quickly came to be known, by the mid-1980s, Chicano Park had become home to scores of monumental murals that helped preserve a sense of local, regional, and transnational Mexican and Mexican-American history and identity. 
In the early 1980s, Cesar Chavez and other leaders of the United Farm Workers Union began working with archivists at Wayne State University in Detroit on an effort to preserve their personal papers and union organizational records. In San Antonio, community members founded uh, the Esperanza Peace and Justice Center in 1987, right, more than 30 years ago. They engaged in activism around Chicana and LGBTQ rights and other social justice issues. But during the late 1980s, 1990s, they also started to work on issues related to heritage uh, and historic preservation and gentrification issues that were emerging. So many other projects like these emerged during the 1980s and 1990s. The creation of cultural centers and new archival collections on college uh, and university campuses, um, the Power of Place project um, that some of you might be familiar with, the Power of Place project at the Embassy Auditorium in Los Angeles and elsewhere, um, the development of oral history projects like the Latino Oral History Project of Rhode Island, and the U.S. Latino and Latina World War II Oral History Project that was based, um, that is based still at UT Austin. One of the broadest of these early efforts was sponsored by the California Office of Historical Preservation, and it led to the 1988 publication, um, Five Views, an Ethnic Historic Site Survey for California. This survey identified 500 sites and properties associated with Native Americans, African Americans, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, and American Latinos in California. The 100 sites associated with Latinos in California included San Diego's Chicano Park, included the Embassy Auditorium in Los Angeles, which is associated with Latino civil rights and labor rights organizing going back to the 1930s. They identified the United Farm Workers' um, first headquarters, property known as 40 Acres. They identified the Silver Dollar Cafe in East Los Angeles, a property associated with Chicano protests against the Vietnam War, and many others, right, 100, and these are just a few. So these cultural preservation efforts and these historical preservation efforts created a foundation for Latino preservation in the 21st century. But I would also say that it was clear in the early 2000s that much work and many obstacles in, the, in these areas remained. So I was a graduate student um, at the University of Washington in Seattle in the early 2000s working on my PhD in history. And I was there when the head of the National Park Service office in Seattle, Steph, at the time Stephanie Toothman, uh, she agreed to work with the Cesar Chavez Foundation to identify and preserve sites and properties associated with Chavez and the farm worker movement. Um, the Park Service and the Chavez Foundation partnered with, with one of my professors, one of my mentors, and she brought me on board with this um, emerging collaborative project. Our team ended up identifying around 30 sites and properties, um, and I wrote National Historic Landmark nominations for two of them. One was 40 acres uh, in Delano, California, a little bit north of Bakersfield, and the other was for the property known as Nuestra Señora de la Paz, which is east of Bakersfield in the mountains, and that property has served as the UFW headquarters um, since the early 1970s, since around 1971. As I was finishing this work, uh, then Congresswoman Hilda Sol Solis and future Secretary of Labor, um, as well as the late Senator John McCain. They were co-sponsoring legislation in the House and the Senate. They were sponsoring legislation that would mandate 
what's known as a special resource study, um, focusing on Cesar Chavez and the farm worker movement. And the purpose of this study would be to determine if any additional sites and properties that beyond those we'd already identified, if any additional sites and properties might merit National Register um, nomination or National Historic Landmark nomination, or even potentially inclusion in the National Park system. When their legislation passed uh, in 2008, um, and President Bush signed it, um, I was teaching at Cal State Fullerton um, in Orange County, Southern California, and the Park Service offered to partner, again, kind of partner with me, um, and this time with some of my students, my undergraduate and graduate students. So in taking up this work, we drew on scholarship, we conducted oral history interviews, um, but we also very quickly appreciated just how much preservation work already had been done, right? That foundation going back years and even decades. Part of that foundation was the development of those UFW archives at Wayne State. Um, part of it was a digital, a massive digital archive known as the Farmworker Movement Documentation Project, which is now housed at um, UC San Diego, right? So we built on that foundation. But we also found that most of the union halls, the schools, the churches, and the other ordinary buildings associated with the farm worker movement, we found that they lack sufficient physical integrity. So this is an issue that started to come up. Nevertheless, working with the Park Service team, we ended up identifying around 40 sites and properties that we thought merited some level of designation, including five of them that merited inclusion in a potential Cesar Chavez National Historical Park. The five properties, one would be 40 acres, another would be La Paz, um, and then three more, um, one in Phoenix, another in Delano, and one in San Jose, which I'll, I'll mention again. So we were finishing um, that study in 2012, and at the time, knowing that Congress uh, in that election year was unlikely to authorize the creation of a National Historical Park, um, Interior Secretary Ken Salazar recommended that President Obama use his executive authority to accept a donation of land um, at La Paz, about 10 acres donated by the Chavez Foundation, that President Obama accept that and then uh, use his power to create the Cesar E. Chavez National Monument, and he did this in October of 2012. It was October 8th, I remember that because it was my older daughter's birthday. So I wasn't there, but it was a great day. So 2012, so I didn't know it at the time, but many, many other Latino preservation efforts were flourishing during these years. In East Los Angeles, for example, two of our LHC founding members were launching the East Side Heritage Consortium with an emphasis on register nominations, uh, national register and state, um, an emphasis on walking tours, and an emphasis on other programming around historic sites like the former Silver Dollar Cafe, but also programming around stories and art and activism, not, you know, not just nominations. Around the same time in San Antonio, the Esperanza Peace and Justice Center was working on a project that started with community members sharing stories and photos that could be digitized, and then some of those photos were reproduced as life-sized banners and displayed throughout the community as works of public art. With the support of LHC founding members Antonia Castaneda and Sarah, San Antonio's Westside Preservation Alliance also began fighting for the protection of local landmarks such as Casa Maldonado and the Univision building, which sadly was demolished in 2013, but there was a, a, a real passionate effort to, to try to save that building. 
Again, early 2010s, other preservationists in Texas worked with the Smithsonian and other partners to create the Bracero History Archive, as well as an exhibit titled Bitter Harvest, which opened at the National Museum of American History and then traveled to various um, venues around the country. And a similar project that I worked on in California was an exhibit on Mendez et al. v. Westminster School District et al., the class action lawsuit that abolished segregated Mexican schools in California in 1947, and in many ways this case served as a precursor to Brown versus Board of Education, so um, an exhibit telling that story. So all of these projects and many, many other projects reflect for me the breadth of Latino preservation work, work that includes buildings in its purview, but not only buildings. These projects are about families, they're about communities, they're about shared experiences, they're about collective struggles for social justice, and these projects aim to preserve the stories related to those things. All of this work for me also suggests, as I said, a tremendous strength at the grassroots. But I'd also note that at this time, we had key people and strong allies in important places, um, really by 2010. And this allowed for new work uh, in the realm of Latino preservation, work with a national scope. So among our most influential allies was Interior Secretary Ken Salazar, who decided to launch the National Park Service's American Latino Heritage Initiative in 2011. I was one of the historians appointed to a steering committee, a sort of a scholars panel, we called it, um, for this initiative. And we were part of a White House uh, forum in 2011. Um, President Obama addressed this, Justice Soto, um, Sonia Sotomayor and, and many, many other amazing people. So our first major pro uh, project, first major task um, was, and there's a little show and tell, the completion of a theme study on American Latino history um, uh, an effort that we hoped would generate and support new National Historic Landmark nominations. When the initiative began in 2011, there were around 2,400 National Historic Landmarks, but only three of those had any connection to 20th century Latino history. Ybor City Historic District in Tampa, the Freedom Tower in Miami, and most recently the 40 Acres nomination that I, I had worked on. 2,400 landmarks, three of them, uh, were 20th century Latino history. Secretary Salazar in one of our initial meetings said he wanted at least 100 more. Uh, so we had, we had high hopes and, and, and a lot of ambitions. Um, our efforts were not as successful as we had hoped. Um, again, I would say largely because of National Park Service integrity standards. But we did see 11 new landmark nominations and designations um, in five years, including the UFW headquarters at La Paz, um, the, the federal courthouse in Los Angeles in which the Mendez et al. case was decided, two sites in Puerto Rico, um, and two sets of murals by Diego Rivera and Jose Orozco. And I know that's probably too small to read, but we had 11. Okay, so this is the context, the historical context, the background in which Latinos and heritage conservation emerged in 2014. Our organization has done a lot of work since then and we've continued to grow. Um, these, these are things that, that Sarah will be speaking about. But one thing that I'd like to emphasize in closing is our advocacy work 
around the Park Service's integrity standards. The standards that require um, listed sites to have undergone very few physical changes since their period of significance. Preservation advocate Ned Kaufman, who many of you are probably familiar with, he argues that these integrity standards perpetuate, quote, unintentional biases against diversity because, quote, many important historical experiences did not take place in buildings that have survived intact, but rather in open fields, barrios, labor camps, union halls, social clubs, street front churches, bunkhouses, tenements, cabins, factories, and docks. And these kinds of places are, quote, highly susceptible to alteration and demolition. Where such sites and properties do survive, and Kaufman argues, quote, safeguarding them, even if much altered, is essential for preserving immigrant and working class histories. We in LHC could not agree more. So we have invested considerable time and energy into advocating for changes in these integrity standards, standards that not only elevate tangible heritage over intangible heritage, but standards that also elevate physical stasis over dynamism thus reinforcing an illusion that some sites and properties can resist change over time. And these two photos are of Our Lady of Guadalupe Mission Chapel in San Jose. That's one of those other five properties that we advocated for inclusion um, in the National Historical Park. Um, Sarah mentioned it. This is a, a building that I've been working on. Um, literally, I was working on an, an effort on the plane last night with this building, interpreting it and so on. Um, but this is a kind of a case study in, in the challenges that integrity standards pose, and I can maybe speak more about it in a bit. Of course, the past is the past, and what's already happened will never change, but Latino preservation is not really about preserving the past. It's not really about putting things under a glass dome, putting them behind a velvet rope so they can gather dust. Latino preservation is about preserving history and heritage and culture and community. And those things are not frozen in time. Another analogy I like is that they're not dead butterflies pinned in some glass case. That's not what we're trying to do. The things we're trying to preserve are living things. They're dynamic things. They're a part of who we are today. They're a part of who we want to be tomorrow. They're a part of who we want our children and our grandchildren to be in the years and decades to come. Thank you. I just wanted to say that there is a longer version of that talk that Ray just gave on LHC's Facebook page. The historiographical work that he's done is so impressive. So if you, if you want to know more, uh, check us out on Facebook, and we have it there. Okay, so I'm just going to give a little bit of a history of LHC and then also give you a few case studies uh, that connect historic preservation to equity and social justice. So I, um, I, I mentioned in the introductions that I'm a historian and curator based in San Antonio and I'm a member of the West Side Preservation Alliance. And 
In 2013, I met uh, Desiree Smith, who at the time was with San Francisco Heritage, and she and her, a colleague of hers at the Los Angeles Conservancy and I were talking about a need for a network, um, something that um, would connect people who had been working on Latino preservation issues, because we knew this was happening. We just didn't know how to connect all of us. And, um, and so we, we knew that this national network could serve as a platform for raising the visibility of heritage conservation in Latino communities and to empower individuals to take direct action to protect and sustain historic spaces in their communities. We felt that um, the creation of a collective could provide us with a voice on preservation issues affecting Latino communities, to share our struggles, to share our victories, and to share our lessons uh, with others. So uh, we were founded in 2014 uh, to be a national network, and that's a photo from our first gathering in Tucson. And um, what we want to do is to be a convener uh, to reflect the diversity of Latino experiences in the United States, to recognize the role that our heritage plays in our quality of life, and to be voices behind our own history and the stewards of our important places. So we are constantly working to balance um, local, state, and national issues. They're all very important. And while we often do look at uh, preservation from a national perspective, and especially in terms of the advocacy work we've been doing um, to try to do things like change the integrity standard. Um, what we know about historic preservation is that it is very often a local issue. And that is often where you can enact the most change in, within your communities at that grassroots level. We want to be an agent of social change, and we want to help people become agents of social change within their own communities. And in fact, we know people are already doing that. So um, and if, if people are already um, aware, then we just want to, um, to assist them in any way that we can. And, and we do respond to a lot of inquiries about things like that. Um, we want to sort of move beyond this language of diversity and inclusion. Important, yes, but we want to keep pushing it to equity and social justice. And what we're really thinking about is framing historic preservation as a social justice issue that we are working towards preservation justice. Um, this is just some photos of our work. I'm going to skip over that uh, and get to the what we know. Uh, what we know is that the discipline and field of historic preservation is not neutral. It never has been. A uh, number of people have written over the years, like Ned Kaufman, have written about how the standards uh, for historic preservation were written at a time when people were very interested in things like George Washington's house. And so the standards reflect that. And so what we know is that historically for communities of color, for working class communities, for LGBTQ communities, Historic preservation has not been neutral. Just recently, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the National Historic Preservation Act. And that has, in many ways, prompted a broader discussion about inclusion, uh, you know, ranging from the types of places that are being preserved to the people who are contributing to the field and to the existing policies and programs. But we believe, and, and Ray laid this out really nicely, that the modern preservation movement's origins 
happened at the same time that you had other social justice movements happening. Civil rights movement, early stages of the environmental movement, um, things like that, uh, uh, cultural resistance movements. Um, we want to see historic preservation placed within the context of that, and, and particularly in the modern context of social justice. And so this is a very simplified definition, but just in case anybody's wondering, well, what exactly do, are you trying to do here? Um, if we just think very simply of social justice as being the recognition of the equal worth of all, of equity for all, and the elimination of inequality, then within historic preservation, that means the recognition of our contributions to the cultural and historical fabric of the US, an increase in recognized and designated Latino historic sites. And I'm gonna say Latino here because we're representing Latinos in heritage conservation, but that it also means African American, Native American, Asian American, LGBTQ. Um, we also wanna see an increase in Latinos working in historic preservation, a shift from entrenched concepts of historic preservation works and uh, work and practices, and in doing all of that, we do want to just recognize that social justice, uh, the social justice movement has a history, and that across that history, um, these movements have been met with resistance, and so that's, that's something to be expected, but it's not something to uh, impede our work. So um, I'm gonna give you two case studies of um, spaces that LHC members have been involved in that are studies in how um, we've moved to empower and take action through historic preservation. Um, so the first one is in Socorro, Texas. So this is just right outside of El Paso. Uh, the Rio Vista National Register District was recently created um, with a lot of assistance from the National Trust and one of our LHC executive committee members, Sela Monta Casper. So this was um, a Bracero labor uh, camp. So when Braceros, which was a program in the 60s to bring workers, male workers from Mexico to the U.S. to work, mostly in farms, one of the um, processing centers was just across the border in Socorro, Texas. So they would come here, they would get all registered, and then they would stay there for a little while and then be sent off to um, some assignment across the U.S. Now the Bracero program was a program that was riddled with uh, abuses. And so it's something that a lot of former Braceros, um, many of whom ended up becoming citizens later, um, it's a very difficult history. And uh, last year we convened a summit in El Paso. Uh, so LHC partnered with the National Trust, the University of Texas at El Paso, and the Smithsonian on this project. And we had um, testimonials from a number of former Braceros. We also uh, spent a day at Rio Vista Farms. Um, this was a way of not only recognizing the importance of this space, but also an attempt to heal and recover history. Um, and again, a difficult history. Second case is the case of La Gloria in San Antonio. Um, La Gloria uh, was a historic Mexican-American-owned gas station, bakery, and dance hall, uh, and it was demolished in 2002. So this maybe doesn't sound like a positive story, but it's, um, I am going to make the argument that, in fact, it is a story of empowerment. Um, the uh, 
gas station was founded by, the Mexican, by a Mexican immigrant named Matilde Elizondo. It was the first multi-pump gas station in San Antonio. Uh, at the time, he owned two other gas stations, smaller ones with just one pump. And then he opened this one in the predominantly Mexican-American west side. And it was particularly unique for its amenities. The Mission Revival style structure featured seven gas pumps and an arcade along the facade where cars could pull into the, uh, to pump their fuel. Um, inside, there was a, a, panader uh, a, a panaderia, a, a, a pastry shop, also a repair shop for cars, and they also showed silent movies up on the roof. Um, it wasn't really intentional, but because this was during the Great Depression and they needed to pay off their mortgage, they uh, decided to build a bandstand on the roof. It was a concrete building, so very strong. They decided to build a bandstand on the roof and they started holding weekly dances there. Uh, they added uh, railings, lights, a concession stand, and uh, they did not serve alcohol, so it was considered a family-friendly place to go for a dance. It became a neighborhood icon and provided family entertainment for all ages until 1941, when uh, most young men went off to serve in the war. At that point, it still remained a gas and service station uh, until 1949, when Elizondo passed away and his sons leased it out. And it continued to be a repair shop until about 2000, and then by 2001, it was vacant. At that time, the community found out that there was an application to demolish it uh, to build a truck car wash, or I guess it's called a truck wash. Um, because of La Gloria's historical and cultural significance, San Antonio's 15-member Historic and Design Review Committee voted unanimously in, 20, um, in, sorry, in 2001 to grant the building historic landmark status, which would have prevented it from being demolished. However, when it was then uh, passed on to the Zoning Commission, the Zoning Commission deemed the property unworthy of historic landmark status, claiming it was an eyesore and a danger to the community because of some un underground gas tanks uh, that were there. The city had the final vote on La Gloria's fate in November of 2001 and again denied historic designation. What happened then was that a passionate group of people from across class lines in San Antonio came together. And this is a very big deal. San Antonio is a majority Mexican-American city, but is incredibly economically segregated. And so we have this um, inter-class coalition of people unite to try to save La Gloria, including Patricia Elizondo, the granddaughter of Matilde Elizondo, who at this point, she was a news anchor for Univision. And if you know anything about the news anchors on Univision, she was, she was a high class lady, okay? <laughs> um, she became a very vocal member of the Save La Gloria Alliance. She wanted to see her grandfather's building have a second life. Uh, artist Mary Agnes Rodriguez, uh, who made these two uh, illustrations, and that's her over there. She chained herself to the building along with several other people. Um, in an attempt to prevent its demolition. Uh, ultimately, the building did fall to the wrecking ball, but it laid the groundwork for the creation of the Westside Preservation Alliance, a local organization that promotes historic preservation in the West Side. It also inspired quite a bit of artwork on the West Side, so La Gloria pops up in a lot of West Side murals. Um, I wanna just tell one more story, because I'm kind of running short on time. Um, and that's the story of Univision. So in 1946, 
Raul Cortez established KCOR, the first full-time Spanish language radio station in the US, and it was there in San Antonio, and that's Raul Cortez. In an era when Mexican-Americans were routinely excluded from mainstream media, KCOR provided news to an overlooked market. This news flash from 1948 reported on a federal court order to end the segregation of Mexican-American children in Texas schools. Um, they, they frequently told story from the perspective of Mexican-Americans and, and what, did, what do you as a Mexican-American need to know? Um, he was also just a media innovator. And so in 1955, he launched the first full-time Spanish language television station, also in San Antonio. He hired a modern architect for his modern idea. And those are some, that's a rendering of the building and then what it looked like after they finished construction. They had one big large studio uh, where they produced their shows. There were no shows that they could buy and distribute at that time. They had to shoot everything themselves. So they did all their own commercials in Spanish. Uh, all the shows were shot there. This station that was founded in San Antonio became the founding station of Univision, a national Spanish language television network. So um, the first hints at the change uh, that was to come was a newspaper article in 2012 titled, Univision site could turn into riverfront housing. The article didn't say anything about the history of the site, other, that was it, it was just a real estate story. And then in 2013, um, the Historic and Design Review Commission received a request to um, demolish the building to create a 350 unit apartment complex. Um, again, that appeared in the paper, but there was no explanation of the history of the site other than this could be new housing. The Westside Preservation Alliance, the San Antonio Conservation Society, the Texas Historical Commission, uh, and others, when the Texas Historical Commission is our state SHPO, um, and others argued that this history of this building, the birthplace of Spanish language television in the US, was worth saving. And by the Office of Historic Preservation's own words, which I've put up here on this uh, screen, the building more than met the required criteria for historic designation, and yet they recommended that the building not be saved, and instead the HDRC should weigh the architectural significance of the building and its cultural interpretation against the proposed development. In other words, 350 apartments were worth more than this history. So the struggle began. We had a news conference outside the building. We started putting protest signs up around the fence that they put up. Uh, but of course, it, it ultimately came down. Uh, that gentleman is a former cameraman from Univision. Um, the, first, the first time that uh, bulldozer came and knocked out a corner of the building, they didn't have their demolition permit yet. And so um, we had a, a stop order um, with uh, the local court. And in the middle of, of trying to work out that stop order, uh, some WPA members climbed the fence and uh, ultimately were arrested. This is something that, um, you know, it might seem a little extreme, Mary Agnes chaining herself to La Gloria, uh, climbing this fence and being arrested. But what I will tell you is that in both cases, doing these things got so much media attention it really shamed the city. At this point, the city, uh, and, and we actually heard that the mayor was regretful about all of this after it happened. Um, 
but it, it, it is a way of calling attention to the drastic inequities in historic preservation. So ultimately, the building came down. Those are the condos that are there now. And you can see along the sidewalk, there are these very small signs that are hard to read because they're white lettering on a silver background. Uh, but they tell a little bit about the history there. So I, um, I'm just going to skip to some recommendations. LHC is very interested in working on and, 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 and encouraging others to, to mentor and support Latino historic preservation leaders. Ultimately, that, we just need more people out there in the field. Also, um, we need to identify, document, and preserve our historic Latino sites. People have been doing this. It's just that there's so much. We need to keep doing it. Uh, and, and in that, we want to both commemorate legacies, but also recognize difficult histories. Um, of course, we have to increase access and inclusion. Um, active community, we want to activate communities to think about their own spaces and places, what can be done here. Um, and, and I really think grassroots is the key. It is so hard to get national change, and that doesn't mean it's not worth trying. We're trying. <laughs> but uh, you can get a lot more done at the grassroots level. And then what we always say at the WPA, conscientization, you've got to let your own communities know why this matters. So it's so important within your own communities to raise that consciousness. And thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel Serta. I'm privileged to be here with you this afternoon. I want to mention a couple of things that are, I guess, relevant in my, my biography uh, that uh, I just want to underscore what Sarah said earlier. First is, I'm a native of Kansas City. I'm privileged to continue to be working here professionally. And although my primary work is as an urban planner, someone who specializes in economic development, historic preservation, and the cultural and historical backdrop of all of those issues is a very essential part of much of the work that I do and have had the opportunity to work on uh, professionally here in Kansas City and, and in other places around the country. I want to highlight these three words in the title of my presentation today, three Spanish words that I think really sum up the challenges that we face not only at LHC but specifically grassroots practitioners advocating for the preservation of Latino historic sites and historic heritage throughout the United States. And those three words are escondido, hidden, desconocido, or unknown, and desaparecido, which means missing. The challenges that we face related to the issues that Ray Rass talked to you about in terms of integrity largely are a function of the marginal and the humble places that Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricanos, Cubanos, other Latino immigrants, and actually natives, indigenous people of North America face in terms of the places that we have inhabited throughout our history, which dates back for millennia. 
to the United States. One of the things that Ray and Sarah asked me to talk about is the local story here in Kansas City. I think I may have, okay. Um, the, much of the work that I'm going to present to you is a product of a historic resources survey that my firm undertook back in 2010, uh, focusing on Kansas City, Kansas, just to get you oriented. We're downtown, in this area here, downtown Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, people are often under the misimpression that the river defines the state line in Kansas City. Actually, the river, uh, the Missouri River, defines the state boundary between Kansas and Missouri. But in Kansas City, what really defines the state line is a street. This blue boundary here follows state line road. Um, so Kansas City as a metropolitan area has evolved throughout its history, dating back even to the colonial period as a crossroads, a crossroads between east and west, between north and south. And one of the things I want to highlight to you about this photograph, I know, how many of you are from Kansas City, familiar with Kansas City at all? Just a handful of you? Let me point out that some, something that sometimes folks from Kansas City don't even entirely appreciate. If you notice, there's sort of a southwesterly drift to part of our street grid. Part of that relates to our geography and topography, but more fundamentally, it relates to the trade routes, trade routes to the southwest, to the interior of what is now Mexico and to the Pacific coast of what is now Mexico from this region. Dating back to the 18th century, there were traders, both Spanish and French fur traders, that were passing from the mouth of the Missouri and Kansas rivers en route to the road that became the road to Santa Fe. In fact, in the suburban Kansas City today, out there off Interstate 35, there's a street called Santa Fe that follows that old path. Uh, ironically, there's a street called Kansas City Road in Santa Fe, if you're familiar with Santa Fe. So, um, Take it back to the 19th century. Uh, Kansas City really grew as an agglomeration of small industrial communities. And it was in this period of the late 19th century that Mexican-American immigration, uh, Mexican immigration to Kansas City first began, as largely as a function of the, uh, the fulcrum of the Kansas City economy, which is the construction of the transcontinental railroad network. Omaha had the spike, right, uh, a promontory that connected through Omaha, the Union Pacific. But it was really fundamentally Kansas City, which is still today the second largest railroad center and network and distribution point in the United States after Chicago, that the National Railroad Network was born. And what brought a large influx of Mexican immigrants to places like Argentine, uh, which is known colloquially locally as Argentina. It was actually named Argentine and Argentine and sort of the more Latin derivation of that name because there was a silver smelter established there that processed ore mined in Colorado uh, back in the 1880s. But it was the railroads and the need to construct these railroads starting in the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century that first brought Mexican laborers in significant numbers in the hundreds and then the thousands to what is now Kansas City. Those workers, when they arrived in places like Argentine and Kansas City, Kansas, were actually housed in very rudimentary facilities. In fact, they were housed in camps where the primary unit of housing was actually the boxcar. They were actually housed in rail camps. So when we look at the decennial census from, say, 1920, you find the names, uh, Spanish names, of Mexican immigrants that arrived in Kansas City, Kansas, and were living there. And if you look at um, that sort of vertical sideways writing there, what it actually says is railroad camp. And this is a history that, as Ray alluded to earlier, was known most colloquially, locally. If you talked to people who could date their family's origins back two or three generations, people my age, so we're growing up in the 70s and 80s, they might talk about the campos, the camps. And we ask them, what was that? Well, we don't like to talk about that. Well, what was it really? Well, when my father, my grandfather first got here, 
the railroad let them live in a boxcar next to the rail yard where they worked as switchmen and as laborers building the track, uh, connecting Kansas City to the national economy. I want to take that local narrative and juxtapose it against the broad tapestry of ancestry and heritage in the United States. This is a slide I've used for a, a long time, and it's a little bit dated now in part because it doesn't refer to DNA, which seems to be the, the primary MO by which people are tracing their family gene genealogy anymore. But uh, this is a, a screenshot of Ancestry.com probably about six or eight years ago. And if, to me, it's just so emblematic. If you think about the history, whether it's of ethnic communities or immigration in the United States, unless you're talking about the contemporary, very uh, almost toxic narratives about immigration in the United States, when we talk in a glowing, nostalgic sense about immigration, what is the fulcrum in terms of a national landmark that people think of? It's Ellis Island. It's that port of arrival. It's the steamers bringing the oppressed escaping oppression, whether it was from governments or famine or poverty in Europe, and being welcomed right, by the Statue of Liberty. That is not the story. When I first gave this presentation probably six or eight years ago, I didn't think that I would have to say it literally. But that is not the story, by and large of Mexican and Central American immigration to the United States. Certainly not today. And uh, it certainly was not the case a century ago. Uh, and when I first put together an earlier iteration of this presentation, I remember saying at the end of that presentation, hopefully we won't go there again. And unfortunately, I, I, I hope I didn't jinx us in saying that, because the narratives you will hear about are very, very much reminiscent of what um, you hear that passes for contemporary immigration debates, if we can rationally actually call it that. So again, the story here locally begins with the railroads arriving in places like Argentine, Armadale, other neighborhoods and communities in Kansas City, Kansas, which have their own industrial heritage, working class heritage. It's actually multi-ethnic. Uh, there was a sharp transition and deflection in, in the, if you look at the overall growth of the Hispanic community in Kansas City. Oh, and by the way, there are some of you here from Kansas City, but I will tell you from my own experience, having been educated on the East Coast and other places, I still get questions every now and then when I'm on the coast with nuestra gente especially, you say, no, wait, wait, you're Mexicano, but you're in Kansas? How, how, did, how did that happen? <laughs> how did you end up there? And again, for many people here locally, it's via the railroads. For my family, it was actually my father drove a truck. Uh, he worked in South Texas on a variety of farms and drove a truck through Kansas City as far as north as Duluth on regular trips and eventually relocated my family here. But when Mexican-Americans arrived in Kansas City, Kansas, in numbers totaling in the thousands, after World War II, after the Alien Exclusion Act of 1918, which basically prohibited immigration to the United States from Eastern Europe, and the railroads and packing houses here in Kansas City very actively began recruiting Mexican laborers. Uh, you have to understand two things. First, that was in a legal and administrative regime where there was not what we know of today as borders. There was not what we know of today in the way of formal immigration regulation, the green card, path to citizenship, any of that. It was on the presumption that the needs of industry simply required recognition that major industries in the United States, like the railroads, were going to import laborers. For the laborers, however, it meant that those laborers were going to be admitted here seasonally and under circumstances in which the prevailing presumption was they would not buy property, 
they would not establish roots, they would not build families. They would simply work here seasonally and then eventually be returned, retained. And again, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but that effect was also the philosophy three decades later of the Bracero program, the assumption that you need a formalized work permit process, laborers will come here, fulfill an urgent economic need in our national economy, and then return. Well, the reality is human life is human life. We're biological entities. We have culture, we have knowledge, we have foresight, we have intellectual capacity, and we are also biologically inclined to procreate. And we also have this thing called the 14th Amendment in the United States that says that persons born in the United States are citizens of the United States. So let me offer that as backdrop to the, the little story I'm gonna tell you here about immigration in Kansas City, Kansas. By 1920, there were estimated approximately 2,500 Mexican-American individuals living in Kansas City, Kansas. They were scattered in and around various railroad yards in Kansas City, Kansas. They were beginning to raise families. They were beginning to intermarry, in some cases, with Anglo families here in Kansas City. Their children were American citizens by virtue of the 14th Amendment. But they lived in a context in which their ability to plant roots as Americans was soundly questioned and frankly rejected by some. And that played itself out locally in debates over local education. This is a school called John J. Ingalls, which is in the Armadale District, just a couple of miles west of here in Kansas City, Kansas. John J. Ingalls and two or three other schools, including this school, Emerson School, named after, after Ralph Waldo Emerson, were both schools that in the early 1920s, very small numbers, we're talking half a dozen, maybe a dozen, Mexican-American school children. And again, I deliberately hyphenate that, Mexican-American. American school children whose parents were Mexican nationals began to enter elementary school. And the response, not formally of the school district initially, but of the parents of the Anglo children who attended those schools was resistance. It was a questioning, a very provocative and deliberative questioning of the authority and legality of those Mexican-American children being educated of public resources being utilized to provide for the education of those children. And at a time when there was literally national mass hysteria about the Spanish flu epidemic, concerns were expressed about hygiene and the health of those workers who lived in very impoverished conditions. And so the response to that by the local school district in these particular two schools was to segregate Mexican-American children into the basements of these schools. In other words, Children who were perceived not to be full U.S. citizens were demonstrably shown that they were not full U.S. citizens by being relegated to basements, which were usually poorly lighted, didn't have adequate air circulation, and uh, were in classrooms where there might be 40 or 50 school children being taught by one teacher, whereas upstairs you might have 15 or 20 students being taught by the same teacher. When I tell people that there were segregated Mexican schools in Kansas City, I, I usually get one of two responses. The first is, I didn't realize that existed in Kansas City. But for many people, actually, the more common response I get was, I didn't realize Mexicans were also segregated. We know the story of Brown v. Board, but concurrent with the consequences of Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 of separate but equal, there was also, particularly in California and Texas, but also in places as remote from the borders, Kansas City, there were also segregated. Mexican schools. In fact, in Kansas City, Kansas, it rose to the level that there were two separate buildings built eventually in the early 1920s specifically for Mexican school children. And why? 
It was not, as you might look at it, if you try to look at somewhat naively and through a somewhat neutral filter, it was not because those children didn't speak English. It was not for purposes of providing anything that resembled bilingual education. It was because of anxiety among white parents about the, the, even the notion that their children were going to be socializing with and educated with people that they saw as less than deserving of the full rights and privileges of American citizens. This is the Clara Barton School, which was built in Argentine to house Mexican-American students. It was in an area that was literally on the other side of the tracks from the primary area of population in Argentine. It was north of the Santa Fe Railroad, where the railroad camps were located, as opposed to the business district and primary residential districts, which were on the hills on the south side of Argentine. It was a very rudimentary facility that did not have indoor plumbing, unlike many other uh, facilities, school facilities built around the same time. This building was designed by the same architect who designed in that period the primary elementary schools in Kansas City, Kansas, many of which still exist. And this building no longer exists because it was not only built in a, a very uh, disadvantaged location, it was actually built in a floodplain, and it was destroyed by a major flood in 1951. Second school I want to point out to you, and this is the, bring this to a little bit of a crescendo here and then come back to some lessons, I think, was a school built on this hillside in an area called Rosedale in Kansas City, Kansas. For those of you familiar with Kansas City, Rosedale is the area just around and immediately north of the University of Kansas medical campus. This hillside, and what you see here is uh, the expressway, 7th Street Expressway was being built when Rosedale was annexed into Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, this photograph is actually from the 1930s. Just to the edge of the right margin there, on the edge of that hill, there was a school built, a brand new, modern, fully equipped school as part of a major bond issue that happened in 1923 called the Major Hudson School. You see that it's labeled there in the top right was one of about 20 schools built and designed by that same architect. Very modern, spacious classrooms with a lot of natural light, ventilation. A big improvement over many of the rudimentary facilities, smaller scale elementary schools that were built throughout the community back in the 1880s and 1890s to initially uh, inaugurate public schools in Kansas City, Kansas. But the school opened a little bit late, one academic year, the 1923-1924 academic year. It opened, I believe, in April. There were actually about half a dozen Mexican-American students who attended school uneventfully that spring. But for some reason, literally the first day of fall schooling in 1924, there was what the uh, local newspaper referred to as a near racial riot or racial problem that happened when, as noted here, three Mexican children appeared. Magically, they just materialized themselves <laughs> at, the, at the Major Hudson School and uh, were being educated there. 200 parents showed up by the end of the school day and demanded the forcible removal of those students from the room. The local police had actually had to declare an emergency. They had to escort the children out of the building to, to provide for their safety, and they were told not to return. The parent of one of those students, just to give you a sense of how large and burgeoning the Mexican-American population was at the time, actually came to Kansas City, Missouri to the Mexican consul's office. There was already a consular office here in Kansas City because of the size and extent of the Mexican-American population and essentially pleaded his case that his children deserved the right to be educated. This turned into not a legal case, not a legal precedent, but actually a local controversy that was largely unknown until it was documented just about 20 years ago 
in a master's education thesis at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. I didn't know this story growing up. And when we were doing the survey work back in 2010, we were actually able to interview a few people who were descendants of some of the children who attended the school who told us that they had grown up knowing this story their entire lives, that their parents had always told them when they were children, you need to be motivated, you need to understand how precious a right it is for you to be educated. Because when I was your age, we were forcibly removed from the school. We were not only told we couldn't go to school, when they finally let us go back to school, they made us go to the Mexican school. And the Mexican school was actually the original wood frame 1880 schoolhouse that that new modern school building built by that major bond issue in 1923 replaced. So when this controversy was resolved to the extent that it was, it was resolved, again, pre-board, Brown v. Board, in the context of separate but equal. Mexican-Americans were actually deemed by, of all entities, the U.S. State Department as American citizens eligible to be educated despite the fact that their parents were Mexican nationals, but they had to be educated in separate facilities. Now, when we tried to actually document the history of the school, one of the stunning things that happened was we actually could not find a lot in the way of physical documentation to confirm the location or the um, actual facility itself. The photograph you just saw, I actually had to speak. At the time, I was a faculty member at the University of Kansas. Our general counsel's office actually had to intervene with the Kansas City, Kansas School District to get them to allow me to examine their archive of the history of schools in Kansas City, Kansas, where I located that photograph. Because even a current staff member who was aware of that education controversy didn't want it publicized. Something that happened 90, 95 years ago, the school district was still embarrassed about the fact that it had happened. When we went to examine the land records to identify the location, we actually couldn't find the school. And we found contradictory information about exactly where it was located. And then we found a uh, newspaper clipping in the school district's file from 1947 that said that when the school district finally closed down the school and integrated it, and then went to sell the building, they ultimately sold it to a local church, they couldn't find the deed to the original school. So literally, and both literally and figuratively, the school didn't exist. Its history was erased from memory. So let me skip ahead and conclude here with some recommendations briefly here, some thoughts to bring this all back together. Okay. The, the first is that to translate the narratives, the stories, the storytelling I was just talking about to an audience that includes not only members of our community, but obviously the larger American community, to fully ensconce this history, not as simply the history of a marginalized ethnic minority, but as actually part of the fabric of the larger story about this country, about becoming, about belonging, about citizenship, about civic duty, about rights, and about place, all of the kinds of themes that if you think about it, preservation is really fundamentally about. What are our key landmarks? Statue of Liberty, Liberty Hall, Philadelphia, right? Capitol building. These physical markers that embody the civic values on which the United States proudly boasts itself to be so exceptional. It is very difficult to do that with the places that provide a tangible representation of our community. But it's also, um, even more challenging because the reality is our own community sometimes 
has become so accustomed to being marginalized and not having our story recognized in those images of Ellis Island and of the ships crossing the Atlantic that sometimes we don't even recognize the importance. And I think that's one of the things that comes out of the, the kind of struggles that, that Sarah has documented in particular in places like San Antonio. There's division within the community over the merits of preserving places that are seen as either very marginal, too humble, maybe something that we're not terribly prideful about, or places that frankly we might feel better forgetting about. Forgetting about the struggle and the challenges and the disrespect and dishonor that's been done uh, to people of, of Hispanic heritage in the United States. So we need to make that preservation you know, important. We need to think about how we go about doing it. Ray and Sarah have talked more about the mechanics of how we do it and the kinds of things we're advocating for through LHC. But the other thought that I want to leave, and this you know, could be the topic of a future presentation maybe to an economic development audience, is that preservation has also been used for many other purposes in the United States besides cultural commemoration. In the state of Missouri, for example, our state historic tax credit program has been responsible for something like 80 to 90 percent of the major development projects that have happened in Kansas City, including the revitalization of our downtown over the last 10 to 15 years. Preservation is not simply about commemoration or designation. It's also about the allocation of resources, financial resources, in our society. And we have to think about that in both the way that acknowledges how preservation has privileged certain places, disadvantaged others, and the challenges going forward when we're trying to make preservation not only relevant, but make it part of the thread of the future growth and development and evolution of our communities. Thank you. We have time for questions or comments, so please, um, anybody, you want to say anything? Let me start, because Opportunity Zones are actually part of my day-to-day -day job, <laughs> what I do. <laughs> sure. Uh, does everyone know what we're talking about, first of all? Because I don't want to assume that you do. Okay, Opportunity Zones were written into the Tax Reform Act, the law passed last year by Congress. And what they allow is they provide a 10-year window for any investor who has some level of capital gains tax exposure to invest you know, some money other, over which they would say, let's say an investor sells a company and they have a, as, as an, a development attorney I talked to the other day told me, he said, I have a client with a $100 million exposure. He has a $100 million triggering event, it's referred to by tax attorneys. In other words, he has some capital gain of $100 million on some investment that he made. Under the U.S. tax code, typically you would be taxed 35% of that. So you'd have to pay $35 million in federal taxes. What the Opportunity Zone legislation allows you to do is to invest that money into a designated opportunity zone. Those zones were designated by the governors of each state and there are criteria. They have to be uh, zones that have very high proportion of low, in, and, uh, low income and moderate income households. And that money has to be deployed basically within a year. 
And so you avoid not only the upfront federal tax, capital gains tax exposure, but for 10 years, any gains that you make on that investment are tax-free. So the first thing to say is that there's tremendous concern, you know, people like this development attorney we talked about, that there's going to be a lot of you know, fraud and abuse of that program. Uh, I work for the Local Initiative Support Corporation, a national nonprofit that has an office here in Kansas City. We're working very hard to try to direct those investments towards projects that are truly community serving those areas. Because, you know, again, people like this development attorney have told me that, you know, people are going to do projects they were going to do anyway. And they're going to be very large scale projects that may have really uh, marginal economic benefit to people in low income communities. But looking at it the other way, it's a tremendous opportunity because there are going to be. I mean, I think anyone involved in the community development or economic development field in the United States is paying a lot of attention right now to Opportunity Zones because there's the expectation that there are going to be billions, if not trillions of dollars invested in these areas. And so guarding against gentrification, you know, trying to find opportunities to better uh, invest in them. But it's a tremendous opportunity, again, where if practitioners, if, if we have sort of our act together, so to speak, and we have projects we've identified, it could be a tremendous infusion of capital to move a variety of community-serving economic development projects forward. Um, the challenge is just it's, it's going to be a matter of competing for those, those resources. And I, I, don't, I wouldn't even use the word scarce, because the, the impression that we're being given is that they're not going to be scarce resources. What's going to be scarce is uh, the willingness of investors to deploy them in the kinds of projects that you're talking about. Yeah. It is um, the the preservation um, organization that you all are representing. Are you all thinking about how to direct opportunity zone dollars, creating opportunities funds that align with you know some of these key initiatives in communities if they are in designated zones? It just seems like that would fit nicely with your agenda and what you all have talked about. I would say that as an organization, we have not been thinking about opportunity zones. Um, we're not really involved in development, other than Dan Daniel is, Daniel's involved in that. Um, I, I think um, what I would like to see happen is that within Latino communities, there would be some efforts towards creating historic uh, districts or towards doing historic resource surveys so that multiple properties can be designated maybe before this sort of development moves in so that when this sort of development moves in things that should be designated already are it's always about being proactive because historic preservation should not be a situation where we're constantly being pitted against developers that's pointless and unending. No, what we need to do is just be proactive about designating our historic sites. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess just my observation would be that um, our, our membership and our leadership, we're so, we're active in our own communities and, you know, so we, we emphasize this grassroots work that we're, we're doing, but in terms of establishing our, uh, you know, authority, I guess, as a national organization, where we can direct in that kind of way, um, that's, a, that's an ongoing task. And so I appreciate your you know, advice to emphasize that. And, and you're welcome to join us and help. <laughs> uh, let me just add one last thought to that, which is um, there are a lot of institutional challenges. And one of the things I think is important to acknowledge, I was very directly involved with the trust in trying to, within the context of the National Trust, establish a Latino initiative. There was a change 
in senior leadership at the trust a little less than a decade ago. And that emphasis shifted. That's what created LHC. Um, I, I think there's an opportunity, though. I think something you're highlighting something important and urgent. There's an opportunity potentially to create a conversation with the trust and similar entities about trying to structure that opportunity. Because as you can imagine, what we hear about all the time, and I could give you lots of examples, and I'm sure my colleagues here can as well, where, again, it's the scarcity of resources, not simply the, there's an issue first and foremost of advocacy and making this a priority. But even where you've made designation a priority, even where you've made the preservation of a particular facility, there are profound challenges with pulling together the resources that are needed. It's very costly to do physical preservation of buildings and sites and to create a, uh, an operating business plan, essentially, for those facilities that can sustain them going forward. But again, I think what you're underscoring is there, there can be opportunities that we might miss otherwise if we don't organize our efforts and have those conversations. Let, 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 me, uh, let me respond to that. And I, I just remembered we need to repeat the questions because we're being recorded. I forgot to do that before. The question was, you said you understood the part of the story about the segregation of the students, but you wanted to understand what the outcome was. Were they ultimately segregated separately in a separate facility or were they allowed to attend that school? So let me, one quick detail about how that transpired. The consul actually interacted with the State Department. This actually was an action that passed through consular channels to the Secretary of State and then back to the governor of the state of Kansas, to the Kansas Attorney General's office, and there was essentially what we today would call a mediation. The result of that mediation, which took about six months, was the determination that first and foremost, those students were entitled to be educated because they were US born, but also there was a blurry line in there that wasn't resolved legally until actually 1944, which was that even those who were not US citizens ought to be educated. That wasn't legally determined for another 20 years in the United States. Uh, until the, uh, what's the name of the case, California? Oh, uh, it, it's escaping me, right? But there was, there was a U.S. Supreme Court case that came out of California that made that determination in 1944. Maybe. But in any case, the, uh, what ended up happening is they, they were segregated in that separate school until it closed in 1947. And I was never able to determine why the school closed, because when it closed, they were then integrated into the majority white school. I don't, I don't know whether it was because of declining numbers or declining need or declining you know, pushback from the white community about the, the need for segregation, but it, but it did ultimately happen a little bit by attrition, but it, w it didn't happen as a function of right. That didn't happen until Brown v. Board. Mm -hmm. The, the question was, it seems like the Mexican-American narrative is dominant in Kansas City. Is there an attempt to be more inclusive of other, I guess, nationalities and ethnicities within that? I would say um, part of the reason for that is because there are literally maybe five people in Kansas City that have done either the historical or the preservation scholarship necessary to document this work. There is the historical reality that the deeper roots and the larger population 
uh, in terms of the Latino community in Kansas City is largely Mexican-American. But it's also the older community, the newer communities. If you look at the pattern of immigration, especially since the 1990s in Kansas City, it's much more predominantly Central American and, and Caribbean. And, um, you know, we have, uh, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but we have a lot of Hondurans, Nicaraguans, Costa Ricans, um, Salvadorans living in and around Kansas City. But again, that's in a much more contemporary context. Those are folks that have arrived largely in the last two to three decades. And frankly, in a domain where some of them have a lot of uncertainty, uh, even those that have legal status at some level, as you know, the administration is contemplating removal of some of the eligibility uh, to remain in the United States. That might affect folks here that have been here for more than a decade and who, as I alluded to earlier, own property, have children, have been raising families, uh, including children who are now U.S. citizens. So it, it's just, it's a function, I think, of the work that needs to be done uh, because there, uh, you know, there's, there's many, many more stories that need to be told. Oh, uh, Sarah's asking about my colleague, Gene Chavez, who's done a, a program, for example, he's done a, a series of programs around different aspects of, of uh, cultural ethnic history of the Hispanic community in Kansas City. For example, he recently has been working on a history of Mexican-American baseball uh, in Kansas City. There have been competitive leagues going back better part of a century, and has done uh, educational programming at the Kansas City Museum around that topic. Thank you. Uh, so the question was about LHC's growth and next steps. Uh, we actually had a big gathering in January of this year with our executive committee. Uh, we're all over the country, and so uh, we have conference calls, you know, negotiating time zones and stuff. Uh, so in January, we all met in San Antonio uh, with a strategic planning consultant, and we're still working on that strategic plan, but uh, hopes to, hopefully it'll be done by the end of the year. Um, and um, this has been a challenge because we are all volunteers. We all are working hard in our own communities. And um, people frequently ask us, how do I get involved? I want to do something in my community. And so we've been trying to figure out how do we manage the growth, because we actually have been growing really fast. Uh, and, um, and so we have been having um, conferences. We, in 2015, we met in Tucson. In 2016, we met in uh, Houston. and then. We didn't have a meeting in 2017, although every year since we were founded in 2014, we've had a panel at the National Trusts Conference. And then in April of this year, we had our largest conference to date in Rhode Island. Um, and we had about 160 people register for that. So that was definitely our biggest conference. Um, what we are seeing is that there is a desire to document uh, Latino uh, historic sites in communities across the country. Uh, if you look at our board leadership, we recognize that we need to do a lot better uh, at uh, Caribbean Latinos, where we, we are 
we, we Mexican-Americans are overrepresented on our board and we're conscious of that, so we are looking to expand. That's, that's why we did our conference in Rhode Island this year as we wanted to, to hit a different demographic. Um, so, yeah, we're hoping that our strategic plan will open up some, some, some answers to some of these questions about how we manage that growth. Multiple members of, on our EC have published on these topics, Ray Rast, Antonia Castaneda, um, I have a piece coming out next year, I think. Oh, and there's also a piece on the founding of LHC in the book, Bending the Future. Uh, it was the 50th anniversary of the National Historic um, Preservation Act book that came out two years ago from University of Massachusetts Press. Um, so we're trying to do more in terms of both the academic side of things as well as create more opportunities for people at local levels to have their own uh, maybe LHC chapters or something like that. Um, so uh, we're still figuring some of that out, but we definitely would love to have you involved. Yeah, just I, I wish I could make the pitch to you and, and show you how um, all the amazing stuff we're doing. And, and but to be honest, we're, um, we're we're doing our best at figuring out how much we can give every week and every month to the organization. Um, I you know I'm a, a a husband and a father and a professor and a I do this consulting work and then there's LAC on you know <laughs> squeeze that in as well. Um, so we're trying to find the fit between the things that we do in our own communities and our own advocacy and our own day jobs and, and see what that can contribute to LHC. But we are moving towards incorporation. I mean, that's the big, as, as our, our nonprofit status, that's kind of the, the real goal for the rest of this year so we can start thinking about our financial standing and so on. Yeah. And I, I would just add the thought because I'm, I'm guilty of, of always using the excuse of being busy and not being as actively engaged with LHC as, as I probably should be. Um, you know, it's to me it's not, I think LHC is where it ought to be at this stage in its evolution. I mean, it's been largely about creating the sort of the web and, and, and the substance of the ideas and activities that we're going to pursue and having to need, then work through the organizational infrastructure piece of putting together the pieces that are necessary for that. But I think that there's been a lot of time and attention devoted to that. Hopefully that will come together, and as, as Ray said, within the next year or so, and then it'll be a matter of kind of scaling out. Um, in terms of whether it's membership or chapters or whatever the case may be. But uh, by the same token, there's an opportunity there, again, to help contribute and, and shape that dialogue going forward. And we can host you Maryland. That would be wonderful. The suggestion was that we could be hosted in Maryland. We post a lot about we post a lot about things that are happening around the country with preservation issues on our Facebook page. We also have a quarterly newsletter which you can sign up for through our Facebook page. But if something is happening in your community, let us know because we can try to help rally support for you or offer some kind of advice from our collective experience, that sort of thing. But we are trying to uh, build our network, so we'd love you to be part of it. Thank you.